Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources, or check out all the original writing, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as our growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts on our website. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from his sprawling 40-acre estate just outside Nashville, Tennessee, is Jeremy Goldcorn, the man recently outed <laughs> as the individual who runs Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn's Twitter account and who was responsible for her December 3rd tweet that read, China has a 5,000-year history of cheating and stealing. Some things will never change. Classic Jeremy. Uh, may you continue to provide nuanced and balanced insights for, for from our esteemed senator. Uh, oh, our esteemed senator, Marsha, she's great, isn't uh, she? God, she yeah. Only the best for us here in Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, anyway. Besides enjoying just such brilliant legislators, uh, our, our great thing about being an American, a citizen of this hegemonic imperium, is the way that we dominate the global discourse, not only through the power of our media or our unalloyed narcissism, but also because of the massively consequential nature of what we as a polity just decide to do. It must be maddening to the rest of the world, and it is absurdly unfair, of course, and we apologize here for dedicating a show to how a particular segment of the Chinese intelligentsia is taking in and talking about American politics, but I think this is nevertheless a very significant topic. Significant and very interesting, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. At some point, yeah. Uh, at some point, uh, it's become particularly interesting uh, in recent weeks. At some point, right around the time of the election, China Twitter, or, you know, the, the people on Twitter who talk about China a lot, was abuzz with the sickening realization that there were a lot of Chinese intellectuals, including many prominent dissidents, who were enthusiastic, avid, and maybe even rabid supporters of uh, Donald Trump. Many people among those uh, of us in the United States who study China, uh, hawks or doves, uh, they're still mostly Democrats. Um, these people were disappointed, but not altogether surprised to see the blind self-taught lawyer Chen Guancheng speaking at the Republican National Convention. But it went way beyond that, with figures from Wang Dan of 1989 fame to Tsinghua sociologist Guo Yuhua to the artist Ai Weiwei, all outing themselves on Twitter, especially in the aftermath of the election, as Trumpsters of one stripe or another, uh, amplifying Trump's post-election lies about supposed election fraud. Uh, we've talked a lot on this show and in various essays on sub-China about the whole phenomenon of Trump's support in China and among Chinese Americans in the U.S. But what we're talking about here specifically is what many would call liberal intellectuals in China, including some outright opponents of the Chinese Communist Party. So we've asked our two guests today to help us make sense of this. Lin Yao, or Yao Lin if you prefer the English name order, received his doctorate in political science from Columbia University, but is now at Yale Law School finishing his JD. And for my money, he's just been one of the smartest people writing on this particular phenomenon. Uh, much of our discussion today will focus on a paper he published in the Journal of Contemporary China in May of 
this year. The paper is called Beaconism and the Trumpian Metamorphosis of Chinese Liberal Intellectuals. And it's just one of the best things I've read this year. It's a, it's a super smart, superbly argued piece that isn't actually bogged down at all in, in methodology. And it offers a kind of grand tour of the Chinese political and intellectual landscape, including some corners of it that I personally find revolting and fascinating in equal measure. Uh, Lin Yao, welcome to Seneca. Thank you, Kaiser. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, you can just call me Yao. <laughs> Okay, I'll call you Yao. <laughs> it makes it easy. Okay, our second guest is our old friend Ian Johnson, who joins us from his new redoubt in Singapore, uh, now that he is a persona non grata in the People's Republic. Ian writes for the New York Times, but also publishes frequently in the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker, and has written uh, recently for one more New York-based publication, our own Sub-China. Uh, he is the author most recently of The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao, uh, a book that we discussed with him on our program. Ian wrote an opinion piece about today's topic for The Times titled, Why Do Chinese Liberals Embrace American Conservatives? Which cites Lin Yao's work. And we're very happy that he could also join us to talk about that. Ian, welcome back to Seneca. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be on the show. All right. So guys, uh, Huang Yasheng at MIT, who's somebody, as, as you know, he's been in, in the trenches for the last four plus years doing battle with uh, Chinese Trump supporters. He had an extremely pithy response to the question in the published headline of, of Ian, your, your op-ed, which, to remind you, asked, why do Chinese liberals embrace American conservatives? And Huang Yasheng's answer on Twitter was simply, because they're not liberals. And, and, and isn't he right? I mean, can he, can we really call them liberals? I mean, Tong Biao, he is a liberal, right? Tong Biao, he's definitely, you know, like a, a liberal as we all would understand it. But my, my point is that we should probably define our terms first. So what is liberalism, ziyopai, uh, in the contemporary Chinese political context? And I think we should particularly do that, if I may just add a, uh, a note from the colonies or from outside America, at least, is that the, the word liberal is used in America to mean pretty much anyone from Joe Biden to Trotsky, whereas <laughs> it has a, a much more limited meaning in most other parts of the world. So, yes, uh, let's define our terms. Yeah, well, I think that was a very catchy headline. And it was, you know, done, of course, by somebody else, as always happens in newspapers. But um, when we think of, I think the, the, the word liberal in the headline was being used the way Americans think of dissidents, in quotation marks. That dissidents are for freedom, and they are against authoritarianism, and therefore they must have a sort of liberal streak. And then especially coming from a more left-oriented newspaper, slightly left of center, let's say, like the New York Times, liberals are sort of the good guys also. So it sort of seems um, in, in that con that, that's how I think these people are portrayed. But simply being against the CCP doesn't mean that you are a liberal. You can be a against the government for a number of reasons. And some of them is love of freedom, let's say, and, and, and less government interference, which would be classic liberalism. But then there's also a bunch of other reasons. Um, and I think one of the things that unites a lot of these people is contrarianism. And that a lot of them are sort of skeptical of the received wisdom. And so this makes them sort of almost... Um, yeah, paradoxically, they, they want to support the, the, the person who's sort of the most troublesome in some ways. And, and because everybody <laughs> in, in this sort of the well-meaning 
educated left in the West are, are anti-Trump, you know, you have to be sort of anti-Trump, that makes a lot of the people think, oh, maybe there is something to this guy Trump, you know, maybe we should sort of see his side of it. And I think also that when people see the, um, the establishment come down hard on one side, that they want to take the other side. They always think there's another side to it. And I think this is the experience in China. You know, the establishment mainstream media will be in one way, and then you automatically think there has to be a counter story to this. There has to be a conspiracy or something behind it that we just don't quite know. And so I think they're more receptive to those ideas without necessarily... One of these motivations has to do with liberalism, really. They thought about headlines like, why are the good guys supporting the bad guys? Or why are (laughs) the Chinese contrarians embracing this contrarian guy? (laughs) Li Yao, what about you, Uh, Yao? Uh, Yeah, so I think uh, the question of like what liberalism really means, of course, is a really difficult question. People have been debating about it. And uh, for me, I think we need to go to the context. I mean, in the U.S., liberal is used in a quite narrow way. It, it isn't even used in, in the same way as many European countries, right? In Spain or France, liberal has a more right-leaning connotation than in the U.S. Um, and in China, I think Pai basically, uh, we can define it a bit more broadly, but not as broad as to the point of meaningless. I think Pai or liberals in China basically have several... Um, uh, fundamental tenets or fundamental beliefs, uh, believe in constitutional protection of basic rights, believe in um, competitive multi-party electoral systems. I think those are the two uh, tenets of Chinese liberalism and liberalism in general, I, I would say. And then there are some particular features of Chinese liberalism, for example, a kind of aversion to Maoist planned economy, uh, they will advocate marketization to some point, but not necessarily complete deregulation of the market. I think some Chinese liberals will say that we need quite a bit of regulation of the market, but just not don't go back to the Maoist era where we have a planned economy or even command economy, right? And also China, Chinese liberalism is to some extent opposite to a kind of um, narrow-minded or military nationalism. So usually if, if you go to the Chinese internet, you will see a debate uh, frequently, uh, frequently between in Chinese liberal intellectuals on the one hand and those more nationalist-minded intellectuals uh, who assert that China uh, it's time for China to rise, China must export the uh, China model to the world, China must p- compete with uh, Western powers in the international arena. And Chinese liberals will frequently say that this is not the case. We need a peaceful coexistence with other countries. We don't want to dominate them. So I think uh, the idea of constitutional rights, the idea of uh, competitive elections, the idea of uh, uh, this peaceful, non-militarist, non-nationalist coexistence with with the world, um, and... Uh, uh, aversion a, a against the Maoist-style planned economy or command economy are uh, defining features of Chinese liberalism. 
That makes them sound very reasonable. Yeah, I was going to say that's very acceptable to your Labradoodle-owning, uh, you know, <laughs> liberal in, in Berkeley or um, Chapel Hill. Um, He's a golden doodle. Okay. <laughs> a golden doodle. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, a golden doodle. That's uh, one step up in the kind of bobo stakes, I guess. Um, so <clears throat> what are some of the more egregious examples of Chinese intellectuals avidly favoring Donald Trump uh, now? And... Uh, who are some of the more prominent critics of the Chinese Communist Party who have come out strongly in favor of Trump? And a question for either of you, uh, Yao or Ian. Okay, I can start. Uh, so, uh, for example, Guo Yuhua, a uh, uh, female sociology professor at Tsinghua University, who I admire very much, um, have been pro-Trump for many years, since 2015 or 2016, when Trump first announced his uh, pres- uh, campaign. Um, and to this day, right? So she has yeah. been a fervent critic of the CCP for many years, and she she isn't someone you were criti- uh, character characterized as neoliberal or conservative in in the usual sense of the term, because she has been advocating for workers' rights. She has been advocating for independent worker unions. She had been uh, advocating for greater uh, transfer of wealth to the uh, to the lower class for many years, right? So she criticized the regime and she also criticized some of the um, effect, uh, uh, impacts of, uh, of capitalism, of unregulated market. And also Xiao Han, uh, a Chinese law sc- legal scholar at the Zhengfa Dajie, who recently uh, came out as pro-Trump, um, and saying that, oh, I have been, I've been studying all the news, uh, from, from the West. And now I've, the, the turning point for me is the Hunter Biden, you know, uh, hard drive <laughs> <laughs> gate. And, um, I, I just realized that the mainstream media in the U.S. are completely covering up the, uh, the thing. And, uh, Trump is the lone fighter against all the untruths, against the immoral, immorality in the world. And I hope he wins and something like that. So, I, th- those are the two examples that come to my mind. Yeah, Guo Yuhua was is even like a really like a, a, a staunch supporter of Xi Jinping, so it's it's very surprising to see her. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I know her pretty well, and I did a Q&A with her for the New York Review of Books, and I, I was also surprised. I mean, I think in her case, there's a little bit of my enemy's enemy is my friend, and I think that in that case, they, they you know, she, she and people like her, probably think that at last the U.S. is kind of waking up and that anything that can be done to sort of deal the CCP a body blow is good. Um, And so for her, I kind of understand it a little bit more. Um, But I I, I still don't see why you would support somebody who is so also fundamentally anti-democratic like Trump is. That's, I think, the paradox that you could... You could un, you could support some of his policies toward China uh, without supporting him lock uh, stock and barrel. I just that's the thing that's sort of the most troubling, if you will, or perplexing is just this need to go in whole hog in in supporting somebody. Right, right, right. Let, let me ask you guys what may strike you as a, a rather blunt uh, question, which is. Why does it actually matter that liberal Chinese intellectuals are disproportionately favoring Donald Trump? Why does that matter at all? Well, it matters in the U.S. Electoral College, of course, because we know China is going to get Electoral College votes. So this is important. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't know. Exactly. No, you could say I don't know. No, I think it, it says something about intellectual discourse in China. I mean, it says something 
about the, I think, the poverty of debate to some degree. And the, of, of course, you have a lot of people in the United States who supported Trump. You had 70 million or whatever people who voted for him. And, and many smart people also voted for, for Trump. Name me one. It's almost like a, <laughs> I'm, <sorry. laughs> I'm just trying to be nice. Uh, but I'm, I'm, uh, I, I do think that there's maybe also a level of desperation in, in this to some degree. Like when I see Guo and people like that supporting Trump, I just don't, it's very, very hard to sort of understand it except almost as, as a form of desperation that with everything sort of collapsing, there's really no outlet to publish anything and they're under such pressure that maybe in some way this person seems like a good one. But I think there's other things that work also, like I was saying before, this love of conspiracy theories and um, and also just a perverse contrarianism, which I think in some ways is healthy, but it's also destructive. Right, right, right. I, I think it matters, it matters um, at least in two ways, first uh, for, the chi- for China and for the US. So even though... Uh, it like the, the effects might be long term, so you can't really discern them right now. But I think for China, uh, so intellectuals, intellectuals are important agencies for for public discourses, right? They they invent uh the 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 terms, the concept, the vocabulary, the defined agenda uh, of discussion. They legitimize certain concepts, certain ideas, right? And they uh they they steer the direction. Of uh, of the prevalent uh, social and political thoughts. So in China, when Chinese liberal intellectuals start to support someone who is such a blatant failure, uh, it quickly, on the one hand, it quickly delegitimizes liberalism in Chinese context. So now uh, a lot of uh, ordinary Chinese uh, citizens. Especially in this uh, in this year, in light of the the completely meltdown of the U.S. response to the pandemic, they have been mocking Chinese liberalism, Chinese liberal intellectuals, uh, for being so blinded to to the reality of the world, right? So, and in the future, suppose the the younger generation grows up in twenty years, in thirty years, and it is time for. Uh, some incoming uh, political transformation in China, and now liberals at at that time want to persuade persuade Chinese citizens to follow their suit and saying that oh the democracy is a good thing we want to have liberalism constitutional protection of rights is a good thing so they will say that you guys have been supporting someone like Trump uh, and you have been supporting Trump's uh, like like destroy destroyance of uh, of US democratic system so why should we trust you right a pretty good question <laughs> even for those who follow Trump like who still believe in those Chinese intellectuals um, we must wonder what path they will go down. Like maybe in two, 20 years time, it will come to, come down to, to a d- duel between the CCP on the one hand and those who, uh, those degenerated, I don't know, like distorted right. liberalism on the other hand. And that's, of course, a really bad thing for China and for the world, where China it's is... Not much of a choice, is, right? Yes. <laughs> and for the U.S., I think it is also important. Um, and part of the effect we have seen this year with uh, 
the Epoch Times and and Apple Dailies and spreading uh, fake news, spreading misinformation. And how did that begin? I think it part of, part of what how it began can be found in the 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 larger uh, transformation in the Chinese uh, public discourse. Uh, in which Chinese liberals play a big role because they have been legitimizing Trump for during the past few years, and um, and and they have been encouraging the spread of uh, misinformation and so on and so forth. So when uh, journalists or semi-journalists, right, those who work uh, uh, in in Zimeiti, I don't know how to translate that term, but like the. Right. Uh, those who play a generous roles, right, and the, the, they become willingly accept and internalize those those uh, rhetorics and misinformation, and when they join force in in reporting uh, the the U.S. elections this year, uh, and maybe being recruited by uh, Guo Wengui or by uh, Da Jiyuan, they uh, the, the, the it shows the effect shows. Right, and it 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 uh, it goes to the point of even influencing the U.S. politics, influencing the U.S. election, right? So I think, uh, the butterfly effect of the transformation of Chinese liberal intellectuals is really huge. It's just that uh, we haven't we haven't been able to see it in full play at this moment, but but right. in a, a few years down the road, we we will see that we will see how disastrous it will be. Oh, I completely so agree. Let's, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's look at the starting point of all of this. Uh, you've you know, hinted at some of them, both of you already, but can we talk about the different explanations that you've heard put forward and why you find them to be unsatisfactory? And let's start with this, Yao. Uh, what is insufficient about the simple enemy of my enemy explanation? These guys hate the party. Trump and his administration made it their main foreign policy objective to poke Beijing in the eye with a stick. And so naturally they love Trump. And I should just say that, I mean, this explanation in some ways makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I, I think the appeal of Trump for many people who otherwise would not find anything appealing in him is that he sometimes says what people are thinking and not willing to say. And uh, for a lot of Americans, even ones who study China and, uh, you know, this group of Chinese people, it can be very pleasant to hear somebody say the Communist Party is, you know, the devil incarnate, whereas previous American administrations would mince their words. Yeah, so uh, as you said, I think this explanation is quite intuitive and appealing, and a lot of people endorse it. Uh, to, some, to some extent, Ian, I think you did, right? Um, so uh, it, it was one of the, the, the hypotheses that I rejected in my paper. Uh, so I don't think this tactical expl- uh, explanation is satisfactory. Why? Because when you look into the early transformations, early endorsements by Chinese liberal intellectuals since uh, 2015, 2016, you realize that they were not talking about uh, Trump's attitude towards China, Trump's uh, uh, trade war, which hasn't happened yet at the time. 
They what were they talking about? They were talking about political correctness. They were talking about oh, the American、uh, racial protest has have gone too far. Black Black Lives Matter is a disaster. Uh, and and political correctness is suffocating American society. And here comes Trump. He's a anti political correctness guy. He's a anti Black Lives Matter guy. He's a you know he will revive American society. So. Uh, Sun Liping, another sociology professor at Tsinghua University, wrote uh, uh wrote an article comparing Trump with Deng Xiaoping in uh late 2017 or early 2018. Uh, so he says that there were there were two greatest experiment political experiments in human history so far. One is reforming opening by Deng Xiaoping, which saved and revived China. And the other is the Trump's anti-political、uh, political correctness war,、uh, which <laughs> saved and which would save and revive the U.S. So those are the two greatest human beings in human history. That's what he said. And and a well, lot. Of, we'll, we'll get into political correctness in、yes. a bit here, but so so basically, you're saying you reject the tactical argument、yes. because. For the obvious reason that prior to China becoming an issue really at all, they were already on board with Trump, and it was、exactly. because of this issue、exactly. of political correctness.、Uh, there, there's another explanation that you've you've heard,、um, you know,、uh, a lot, and one that you devote another good part of your paper to refuting, and, and that's the neoliberal affinity argument. I mean, again, that that's one where.、Uh, When you were talking about sort of what defines liberalism in China, you flicked at at the idea that、uh, they are pro market reform generally. They, you know, as you say, it's really more they don't want Maoist, you know, central planning excess. But this really important paper that was done by、uh, Yixing Xu and and Jennifer Pan、uh, looked at the way that these these ideas cluster. How it, it seems that in China and you know often in in, in other countries as well, you have. Uh, a clustering of sort of political democratic、uh, values and economic、uh, sort of pro market values, classic sort of neoliberalism, right?、Uh, why is that not a satisfactory explanation for this pro Trump phenomenon that we're seeing? Yeah, sure. So,、uh, Eating and Jennifer, Eating is、uh, my friend, and I like their work very much. But oh I, yeah, it's great. I、paper. have to disagree to some extent with their conclusions. Not that their conclusions are wrong, but but simply,、uh, I think they rely on some、uh, some questionnaire which were designed by.、Uh, Random netizens, including myself, I was involved a couple of years ago with like we discussed with friends on BBS, and we come out with that questionnaire, and we put it in use,、uh, testing ordinary citizens,、uh, which is another problem with that、uh, with applying their conclusion to an- analyzing Chinese liberal intellectuals because that questionnaire was was not designed for intellectuals. Who might have more sophisticated understanding of those issues? Who might be able to decouple the the different dimensions, right? Better than ordinary citizens. And、yeah. as to intellectuals, I think、uh, some pe- many people have been saying, "Oh, Chinese liberals are really neoliberals." I think that might be true to some extent. Many of them、uh, have this pro market attitude out of their lived experience, but it doesn't.、Uh, It cannot be overgeneralized. I mean, for example, Guo Yuhua and Sun Liping, 
they are not uh, neoliberal as we would typically understand. Sun Liping wrote a lot of articles advocating a northern European model, right, saying that we need we need to look up to uh, Sweden and Norway because they have better social welfare system than the U.S. and so on forth. Um, and even for those uh, ostensibly neoliberal intellectuals, even for those who have been saying out loud that we need uh, as much privatization as possible, we need to understand how come they become neo neoliberals in the first place? So right. what is the process of socialization and internalization of those neoliberal ideologies for them? And so if that's something need, that needs to be explained, then it cannot be the independent explanation for for their uh, later Trumpian transformation. So right. maybe the Trumpian transformation and the neoliberal transma transformation are the uh, about the effect of the same cause, which uh, then I argue is the kind of big uh, political weakness uh, sociology they have uh, acquired and developed through through their lived experience with with Maoism and then later enforced with with the rise of Xi Jinping. Yeah, we'll get into beaconism in just one second. Ian, let me put a question to you, because it, it seems that the neoliberal affinity argument might come from the sense that what we're seeing now with these Chinese Trump fans is a lot like what we saw in Poland and the Czech Republic, uh, then still Czechoslovakia back in the late 80s and following the end of the Cold War, when many of the liberals who enjoyed uh, support in the United States turned out to hold some uh, surprising beliefs uh, that did not sit so well with the golden doodle-owning liberals of Chapel Hill <laughs> Golden Berkeley. doodles were only bred for the first time in Australia in the early 1990s, and so they... Oh, sorry, it's, okay. Let's, let's not introduce uh, uh, anachronisms, dog-breed anachronisms into this. <laughs> um, so, as with, you know, the same, you saw a kind of similar thing with uh, some of the Russian dissidents who uh, enjoyed support in the U.S. and other Western countries in the 70s and 80s. So, Ian, do you think um, this is part of it? Uh, and you were reporting from Berlin for quite a good stretch of that time period I've just mentioned. Uh, does this strike you as, um, you know, similar uh, to what you saw in Eastern Europe? Well, to some degree, I think people have a hard time, like we, we all do, uh, escaping our past and, and how we were trained to think about things or how we were brought up to think about things. And I, I think that for many people in China, at least, at least in the, among the, in the, in the intellectuals, let's say in the intellectual circles, um, you know, there's a lot of arguments are kind of ad hoc and not really tested out very well. Um, you know, like I, I know this is sort of, this is getting into some more, very unprovable hypotheses, but it has a real effect on somebody if they've never read, let's say, a reliable or had reliable benchmark information on stuff. I think it's hard for people to even come up with coherent arguments. Like, like if you think of somebody like Goyihua, who is a terribly intelligent person and done some first-rate work, but sometimes the lack of facts that they have at their disposal or reliable facts, because for them, everything is up in the air. Um, everything is open for debate. There's almost like no, 
real hard facts that they can they feel they can rely on so it leads them down these weird blind alleys i find um it really sounds like you're describing american trumpers (laughs) yes i think so also no i see a huge similarity uh where people nowadays don't have not read newspapers don't subscribe to newspapers um and in some ways, China is in advance of that, um, and that there was no reliable information. I mean, if you're in, if you're in China, like, what's the reliable newspaper you're going to read? You know, if you're in if you're in the United States, you could say, well, I'll read the New York Times, I'll read the Wall Street Journal, I'll read a couple of other things to get different points of view. Of course, they all have their biases, but there's some like basic factual you know, basis to them. Um, in China, what are you going to read? Like uh, Beijing Rabao or something like that? I mean, or what's the good newspaper? What's the decent newspaper where you're going to get? basic facts and, and a reality check to it's everything's like a morass it's like you're swimming in a a sea of bullshit and truth and like all this stuff that you, it's really hard to you, know, you have your intuitive way of, of figuring things out and you triangulate things against your lived experiences and what other people tell you and and things like that um but it's i think it's just hard to to get real information and that leads to these kind of weird intellectual gymnastics sometimes that people go through. But this is maybe getting down a slightly different path from what you want to talk about. So, y'all, your conclusion in your paper is that it's not tactical, it's not neoliberal affinity, it's actually this phenomenon, as you've mentioned, of beaconism that's most useful in understanding the the Chuanhua, or the Trumpian metamorphosis. Uh, You talk about two types of beaconism, political and civilizational. What are these, and which do you see as the one that's primarily at work in this metamorphosis? So, uh, political mechanism, I I, uh, I describe as um, a kind of a psychological mechanism that grows out of uh, Chinese liberals' uh, collective lived experience of Maoism, and that later that the recollection, that the collective memory, collective recollection of Maoism. So. Uh, because um, at the time of reform and opening, they have suffered already suffered a lot from cultural revolution and so on and so forth, and they have uh, they are opening up their eyes to a more prosperous uh, Western world. Um, so they uh, they 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 internalize this kind of black and white contrast between China and the West. Uh, the Chinese political regime and the Western political regime, and um, in order to strength, strengthen their rhetoric, advocating for liberal democracy in China, they uh, they kind of um, intentionally or unintentionally internalize a, a rhetorical strategy that sanitize uh, the actually existing democracies in the West, especially right. in the U.S., because for Chinese, uh, U.S. is the major c- contrast point. Other countries are either too small or too poor, so they, they think oh, that China and U.S., that those are the two comparable uh, great powers in the world. So uh, Chinese liberal intellectuals, in advocating for, uh, the ideal of liberal democracy, they uh, inadvertently uh, sanitize the the uh, liberal democratic practice in the US um so what what does it mean by sanitizing it sanitizing it means that well, you can admit that there are some minor problems currently existing uh, existing in the system no system is perfect right but you cannot admit to any major systematic institutional failures on the US part 
right? So when U.S. liberals, U.S. leftists uh, self-criticize, and when U.S. social movements demand that uh, uh, the U.S. confront its own uh, problem of systematic systematic racism, uh, the you, uh, you, Chinese liberal intellectuals recoiled, and they 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 think that that's a self a great self undermining, right? You you undermine yourself because you admit that you have some systematic problem, and which can be taken advantage by the CCP because CCP has been saying that uh, the U.S. has a lot of uh, human rights abuse problems and uh, racism problems and so on and so forth, right? So how can we now argue to the Chinese people that liberal democracy is great if the the most powerful country, liberal democratic country in the world, still has systematic racism problem, right? And still have, um, and also those, those uh, Chinese liberals, because of their lived experience with the Cultural Revolution, and they are especially keen to uh, compare uh, events in uh, overseas with their own lived experience, and they because that's the the most readily available vocabulary uh, for them, right? So right. when they see that oh, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, the protests are tearing down Confederacy uh, monuments, they think this is a poor situation. This is uh, destroying the four O's in the Cultural Revolution, right? <laughs> and uh, political correctness. That's of course, uh, right? So, so you criticize right. yourself and, and in front of the portrait of Mao Zuxi, um, which is also, which was also something some of them had experienced in the Cultural Revolution. So they, uh, reconceptualize and analyze everything that's going on in the US according to their own Cultural Revolution generated uh, vocabulary, uh, which you know, of course, has the effect of distorting what's what's uh, the the the, uh, the understanding of of the U.S. politics, and then with uh, again with all this uh, perceived self criticism and self owning by the uh, American intellectuals, uh, they they feel a growing sense of frustration um, with their American counterparts, which is where the 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 intuitive explanation of enemy's enemy comes in because over the past decade with the rise of Xi Jinping, uh, Chinese liberal intellectuals have been feeling more and more suffocated, right? But by the tightening political atmosphere. And they have been hoping that uh, the, the their counterparts in US, in in Europe, might stand up and do something, to just do something. But it, again and again, they, they, they see that their U.S. counterparts are uh, prioritizing self-criticism, prioritizing right. advocating domestic uh, racial justice over the plight of uh, Chinese people. So that's, that's more and more frustrating for them. And because there's this uh, pre, uh, presupposition, predisposition, of of political uh, liberalism uh, of sanitizing U.S. politics, they they increasingly see those U.S. elites, U.S. political correctness elites, are engaging in something trivial and meaningless, uh, forgetting the bigger pictures. And now we need someone to uh, 
to stand up, right, to destroy the whole political pol- uh, uh, correctness uh, right, exactly. nonsense, right? And, what, what about civilizational? Yes. Uh, I think we're pretty clear now on yes. what, what political beaconism is. Yes. What about civilizational beaconism? Because so, it, it seems to overlap a bit here. Overlap a bit, but but uh, uh, also different. I think when we look at contemporary Chinese political thought, we need to trace it a little back to late 19th centuries when China first encountered the West in late Qing dynasty. At the time, Chinese lib- uh, intellectuals, liberal or non-liberal, were shocked by the superior uh, scientific and technological political powers of uh, of the West, and they eagerly uh, they, they they want to learn everything, learn the trick just to make China strong, right? They gobble up uh, everything the West had to offer at the time, and unfortunately, that was the time when scientific racism and colonial thinking. Uh, was on the rise, was on the rise in the West. And so if you look at uh, Chinese liberal, uh, Chinese intellectuals writing at the time, for, for example, Liang Qichao, he has been saying things like, um, uh, the white is the best, the, the black is the worst, uh, and the yellow, the yellow color, uh, although the white people think the yellow color is inferior, but, but in, in, in fact, we can be as strong as the white people because our brain structure or stuff like that. So, uh, he was being, has been uh, saying in, uh, explicit racist thing, um, and in the in the next century, because of all the tomios laws and and uh, uh, interruption by politics, Chinese uh, the the development of uh, social sciences and humanities in China have been largely stored. Right, so there have had not been quite a reckoning with uh, with this scientific racist past and with this. Uh, Underlying colonial thinking, imperialist thinking in Chinese in in Chinese folk social po- political uh, psychology. So when uh, uh, fast forward to the present, we see from many of the writings, both uh, by Chinese liberal intellectuals and non-liberal nationalist intellectuals, uh, they constantly. Uh, they have been internalizing this idea, this this Western centric. Uh, idea of world order, which is premised on a kind of implicit racial hierarchy. So um, they they are very receptive to the, the rhetoric that, oh, the Western, uh, the, the uh, Europe, uh, European countries should not welcome uh, immigrants, Muslim immigrants, because that would destroy the Western civilization, because uh, the, well, Europe is committing uh, a demographic uh, suicide, and so on and forth. Um, so when Trump says that uh, make America great again, uh, that really hits home uh, for them. Um, and uh, and that here I might add that there's a a little bit nuances, a little bit difference between liberal civilizational baconists on the one hand and non-liberals who also internalize this civilizational discourse. Uh, so for liberals, uh, civilizationalists, they they. They they also they imagine the world on the basis of this civilizational hierarchy, Western centric civilizational hi- hierarchy, but uh, they fantasize a time when uh, China could rise to the top of the hierarchy along with the West. Well, China would join them uh, uh, to be one of the great civilizations, uh, but that process would be hindered by by those more inferior civilizations or cultures, uh, <laughs> right? 
blacks, uh, the, the Muslims, they are danger. They are danger both to the Chinese civilization and to Western civilization. So we should join hand in hand to keep them in check. And uh, for non-liberal nationalist intellectuals in China, they fantasize a, a, a moment, a future moment where China could replace the West at the top of the, of the hierarchy. But that doesn't mean that they want the West to be brought down by barbarians, so to speak, quote unquote, um, because they uh, th there's a Chinese saying, "Inxiong xi inxiong," right? So uh, China and the, the West would have a fight in the future, but uh, for the West to be dragged down by by some inferiors or by some barbarian, that's so that's too re regrettable. So, <laughs> so, so uh, you can it's, it's, see it's that. It's funny. I mean, you, yeah. you know, I think there are probably some people who are imagining that you, you can't leap directly from, you know, the social Darwinism that was imported in the age of Yen Fu or whatever, uh, all the way in the 19th century. But that all you need to do, I mean, you look at the May 4th literature, which is full of a lot of just sort of self-flagellation about, you know, the, the failures of Confucian civilization. And look at, look at um, not only the Cultural Revolution, where it's kind of obvious, but Look at it at Hsiang in 1989. I mm -hmm. mean, it's the same stuff. It's the same themes. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, River Elegy. If you haven't seen, it's important. Yes, yes, uh, yes. It's a really yeah. important piece. Yeah. Um, let's let's move to this topic of political correctness. Ian, you put political correctness front and center in in the piece that you wrote for the Times. Uh, I think both of you uh, talk about it, uh, and you know how it, you know actually. Liao, you wrote a really great piece. I want to talk a little bit about how you know it, it's uh, the assumption that political correctness is a bad thing, uh, or that it's gone too far. It just frames discussions, even among many real liberal Chinese intellectuals. Uh, but Ian, let's 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 focus on you for this. Uh, why is American political correctness such a fixation for Chinese intellectuals? Well, I think many people see this um, a, as, as a way to force people to have certain viewpoints um, that you have to do things a certain way. Uh, and I think that obviously grates because people have, are being told this constantly in China. Um, and, and so I think that for, for, for many Chinese thinkers, this is, this is sort of the fundamental problem um, that they want to break free of exactly those kind of straitjackets and, and, and the correct way of, of thinking and doing things. And, you know, just like in American academia now, you've uh, often have to have a tag at the end of your email telling people how to refer to you and stuff like that. And if you don't have that, you're sort of under pressure almost to, to do it now. Um, and I think that sort of thing grates, um, among Chinese intellectuals. Uh, so that's, one, I, I guess it's in other words, it's sort of, it's, it's a typical thing where you take your own experiences and you apply it elsewhere and you think that this is a similar thing. It's not really the same thing at all, but I think people see it like that. I think before we get into uh, Yao's piece, let's talk a little bit about this idea of Baizor, uh, which is perhaps the easiest way to translate it is the golden doodle owning uh, liberal oh. in Chapel Hill. <laughs> anyway, what does Baizor mean? How is it used? Um, and what is it about the anti-Baizor crowd that for some reason congregated mainly on the core client site Zhihu? Yao, do you want to give some background on this? And maybe Kaiser, you can fill in because uh, you've also given this some thought. Yeah, sure. So Baizu are literally white lefties, 
right? Why right left is uh, uh, the first use I think by Zhuhu's people on Zhuhu to describe the kind of uh, social justice activists in the West, those who care about uh, the plight of uh, refugees, because I think the term was first, first popular, uh, popularized in 2015 when Europe was undergoing the refugee crisis. So those people were saying that, oh, you, if you guys will really want to welcome the refugees, open your own home, you open them to your house, but, but just don't uh, spread the refugees across Europe to other, to other people's house, and so on and forth. So the term Bai Zuo, uh, of course, it has the Zuo part, lefty. So uh, in, in Chinese context, it's derogatory and meaning that uh, you, you uh, care about uh, equality uh, without any uh, further consideration of, of uh, feasibilities and so on and so forth. Um, and the Bai part, I think, also has that connotation, but more, more uh, beyond that. So it has a connotation of being in 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 Chinese slang, uh, uh, words like bai lianhua or sha sha bai tian. Bai means like you are naive, you are pure but naive, right? So uh, uh and also bai as as a racial uh term, um, has this connotation that those bai or those white lefties. However naive and uh, innocent they might be, however unrealistic that their proposals are, they are white people. Like so, so uh, the 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 political agency of uh, black and brown and Asian activists are uh, eliminated uh, in by by using this term, as if uh, every proposal of social justice must come from white people. However naive they are, they are the people who have ideas. They are, they are the people who have agency. They can act. And uh, they are uh, coming to save uh, black and brown people and other people, uh, but they save them in the wrong way. They, they make the world worse. Right? So right. I think that's the whole connotation of Bai Zuo. Yes. So I, I've heard an alternative uh, suggestion as for what the Bai and Bai Zuo is short for. That's for Bai Chi. Uh, so I've heard that it, it actually comes from, it's kind of a, a translation of the, uh, the conservative epithet libtard, that it's sort of, you know, mentally challenged uh, lefties. Is, yeah. is there any truth to that? No, I think that that was later added, like when, okay. after the term, uh, after the term has been popularized and circulated on the internet, it was added, the, the, the interpretation as added, but, but uh, a few years back, uh, before uh, before it was po- became popular and when it was was first introduced to the discourse, uh, you could see that it uh, apparently referred to Biden and also Bai Lianhua to some extent, which was a term. Um, if you read Liu Cixin Santi, Three Bodies, right? Three Bodies and uh, Three Body <coughs> help uh, popularize yeah. an an image of a woman Chen Xin which was designated by the earth people, by, by earthlings as the savior, but, but was so naive and innocent and knows nothing and in the end inadvertently destroyed the earth in the process. Um, and the real hero was some male guy. Um, um, and so after the uh, Santi was published, uh, readers of Santi quickly invented the term Bai Lianhua to describe Chen Xin, which, uh, which is uh, uh, obviously misogynistic, but, but also you can see how this, uh, this attitude against social activism is tied to misogyny in Chinese uh, uh, discourse. 
And Biden's rule no longer just applies to white liberals in the West. It actually also now is used to to call out so-called social justice warriors in China, right? Uh, they're they're called, you know, with with no irony, Baizuo as well. Anyway, yes, uh, yes. That's 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 a good piece of, of, of background for this. But, you know, I just wanted to add something. I, I thought also when I hear heard those criticisms, it reminded me also of when I was living in Europe and, and just after the refugee crisis, I went to the United States and talked to people who. Uh, were some Trump voters, and they were also saying, you know, what a disaster this is going to be for Europe, letting in these refugees. And I, I feel, I, and of course, it really wasn't actually for Europe a, a disaster, but it reminded me that um, that there's a certain amount of, um, of of almost jealousy that you you're actually or or th- feeling threatened by people who are trying to do something, and, and that you're actually doing something, and we are not or not able to do it and that therefore this leads to some kind of resentment um and I, yeah i don't know it, it seems to me there was some sort of parallel there sure 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 um should we talk yao about the piece you wrote for peng bai sixiang shichang uh and it was translated and published by uh david ownby's reading the china dream which is a website a fantastic website which is in fact the subject of uh the piece ian wrote that we published with great delight on sub china uh, and we'll put a link into the show notes. Um, uh, uh, sorry, that was a rather long detour to ask you about the conversation in Shanghai involving four Chinese public intellectuals discussing the Black Lives Matter movement. Can you give us a sense of how prevalent this is, even among people who do not support Trump? Yes. So you can see, as you can see from the the article, the the, the lecture I was responding to. Um, the among four professors in China who are anti-Trump, who are you might you might call right. true liberals in China, they they have been taking in, they have been using the term political correctness, and they have been falling prey to this this way of framing public discourse, right? And I think that's um one of the defining features nowadays of the Chinese uh, Chinese internet because people keep talking about. Uh, those important terms and keep framing public discourse in that way, political correctness, cancel culture, and so on and so forth. Despite the vast differences between the Chinese political context and the U.S. political context, right? So there have been, uh, I think, political correctness has been on top of everyone's mind <laughs> on the Chinese internet. Whenever the some heated issue comes up, you. Uh, one party will quickly descend into accusing the other party of using per, uh, political correctness to to ad- advance his own cause and and suppress the other side's opinion and so on and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> it's always like that. Um, Ian, I, I'm curious, what explains this eagerness by so many Chinese intellectuals to see in so-called political correctness uh, a kind of you know threat to a, a return to Maoist dogma. I mean, it comes up a lot, you know, even if you thought that. But what I, I want to zero in on here is that obviously, you know, it, it, there's a lot of the same thing. The conservative right uses it. They are always, you know, immediately start tearing down statues. Oh, that's the Red Guards. Uh, but what what strikes me as really interesting is the way they seem to crib so many of their arguments 
uh, the Chinese intellectuals directly from the United States. Uh, they, they use the same sort of, you know, abusing of evolutionary psychology to justify their claims about, you know, genetic differences in intellect or that are tied to race or to gender. Uh, they, they crib the same arguments about Islamophobia. Um, I, I've seen, for example, perennially in, in you know, the, the, the kerfuffle over uh, the so-called uh, you know, African problem in Guangzhou, they will use the same talking points that you see on alt-right American websites. I mean, it doesn't seem, in other words, to come just from the experience of the Cultural Revolution. Their touchstone seems to be Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson or, or whatever. Uh, this seems to be what they're reading. It's really strange. Yeah, I mean, it often strikes me that when it's always so interesting in telling what one culture takes from another, because we were in the West taking, or I've been taking strange things from China uh, for decades and decades, if not centuries. And when Chinese look at our intellectual discourse, they sometimes, as you point out, take the what seem to be the oddest or least convincing arguments not made by the sort of top-notch intellectuals in the West. I mean, these are not the bright, they're, they're in, often very thrilling reads, if you're willing to put aside, you know, your, your, your sense of judgment, but they're not really top-rate thought thinkers, but they come across well in China. I think, you know, because a lot of that reminds me sort of of Ai Weiwei and when he was sort of active and and this sort of putting down people and this snarky social media thing. I mean, of course, we've had that all around the world now, but it's really quite prevalent in China. And this is like one of the few areas of intellectual debate that you can kind of have um, because there aren't sort of peer-reviewed journals or there aren't magazines like, say, The Atlantic or whatever, The New Yorker, where reasonable opinion makers will sort of debate issues. It's it's all in the social media sphere. Right. And so, you know, people like that, if you can stick your finger at somebody, uh, poke them in the eye and, and, and so on, then you've sort of scored your point. That's sort of the only way to win arguments. So I think they come across well because it's almost like a cocktail party chatter level of intellectual debate. Right, right, right. Uh, we've already discussed a number of layers to these questions uh, with us talking about how Chinese people are talking about US politics, us watching them, watching us. But let's add another layer just for shits and giggles. So, Ian and Yao, you must have gotten quite a response in China uh, or from Chinese liberal intellectuals here in the United States uh, about you know, your recent work on this topic. So what did they say about what you said about what they say about American politics? <laughs> well, I can tell you one thing. So I, I, I interviewed um, for my piece for the Times, uh, Lee Ray's daughter, Lee Nan Yang, uh, who I've written about before. And she's uh, a real pro-Trumper or a Trumpette or whatever. And uh, I, her material got cut out of the piece and so I, I mentioned to her, yeah, sorry about this. And then before I knew it, she sent out an email blast to all of her followers about how she had a discussion with me and that I'm sort of a well-meaning guy, but I didn't, I don't really get what's going on. And that, um, you know, and, and this was, went out to, I don't know, was like 500 people on her email distribution list. But I think maybe that 
Um, I, yeah, I'm probably a, in their eyes a perfect example of a Baidzuo, you know, like some yeah, you white sh- shagua sort of type of guy, <laughs> which is probably true. So, anyways, uh, <laughs> but that was one reaction I got. Yeah, uh, that's funny. From uh, so just Liray, who he was, uh, he was somebody who was a a long march survivor uh, who was quite high in 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 political life in China, and then sort of became. Uh, I guess you'd call him a, a dissident, yeah. I mean, after uh, he he was one of the authors of one of those open letters in the early two thousands. He championed uh, uh, sort of counter histories in China right. and uh, was one of the patron saints of uh, China through the ages, or however you want to translate um, that magazine's name. And so, yeah, and his daughter has sort of kept the flame alive. Uh, she's just living temporarily in the United States, but she's a, a Chinese citizen and still, I think, would re- represent some of the Chinese sort of left uh, liberal thinkers. I mean, yeah, however you want to describe What about you, Yao? Uh, well, what about you, Yao? Yeah, because we can't blame your piece, uh, your work on your whiteness. <laughs> You're not a, a, a shagwa either. <laughs> I, my, my, uh, I've been receiving emails and social media messages of two kinds of two kinds as you can imagine one kind is oh thank you so much for explaining this this has been puzzle uh, has been puzzling me for years and finally i see a, a explanation and uh, which is quite convincing right and so on and so forth and the other kind is Hey, you are a piece of shit. You are, you are Wu Mao. You are, you are sent by the CCP to defame uh, the great Trump. <laughs> and, uh, when Trump get reelected, you will be deported. You get ready for it. Pack your, pack your stuff and so on and forth. And, uh, for to one of the email, I reply that, let's see if he get, gets reelected or what. <laughs> well, he would have, if not for all the election fraud. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, he's still in the White House, Kaiser. Yeah, you persist yeah. in your optimism that <laughs> everything's going to be fine. <laughs> Those of us from other countries <laughs> have the go-bag packed. <laughs> uh, Liel, at, at the end of your paper, you suggested that the outcome of the election was going to be a great way to see whether the political beaconism or the civilizational beaconism was ultimately the stronger. Uh, what do you conclude now, having seen what's what's happened? Yeah, exactly. As you can see now... Uh, Pro-Trump liberal intellectuals have been falling into two camps. They are even fighting with each other now. One camp says that uh, let's accept oh, the, 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 the loss. Let's acknowledge Biden's win. Let's, let's uh, uphold. Let's uh, together support uh, American democracy. Um, uh, and the other camp, which I think is much larger, still refuse to accept and they have been circulating those uh, conspiracy theory i've been i've been have uh, i've been having quite a fun uh, as i as i currently in several of those pro trump wechat groups just observing what they are saying <laughs> like they have been coming up with uh, with uh, theory every day today they have been saying that uh, why did, didn't the supreme court support trump because the the supreme court uh, of course, think about it. Three of the, the nine justices are appointed by Trump. How can I not support Trump? So the real reason is that they have been working closely with Trump to gather more evidence. And only when the evidence uh, is sufficient to convince uh, right, the whole country <laughs> that Biden is a fraud will the Supreme Court act. So now let's don't dart out Let's don't hit the grass to, to scare the, the snake and, <laughs> and so on and forth. Um, so... And, and Sun Liping, one of the professors I mentioned earlier, 
uh, the sociology professor yesterday published a, a WeChat article, a very short article, um, saying that a lot of uh, friends have been asking me you uh, how the U.S. have come to this point. Uh, my answer. Uh, is that let's keep faith in Trump. Uh, not he didn't say that explicitly. He says that uh, I will give you a short answer, but I won't be too explicit. My answer is that civilization is always should always take priority over institutions. Right. That's exactly what I said in my paper about the uh, right. about civilizational bigness. Who will who will prioritize the 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 perceived uh, uh survival of Western civilization over the preservation of American uh, political institutions? So I think the di difference between political and civilization bigness is becoming clear and clearer. Um, if you if you look at the, the how how those two different camps within pro-Trump uh, liberals react to the electoral loss, one more for you, Liao, before we go back to uh, to to Ian, and uh, you posit that younger Chinese intellectuals will be on balance less persuaded by Trumpism than their old compatriots. Uh, they're going to be less re ready to make those cultural revolution connections, even though I should say. You know, if anything, it's the Trumpian populists who are more closely, you know, like the the Cultural Revolution. I mean, they they resemble it a whole lot more than BLM does. But anyway, these younger people are more tech savvy. They're presumably able to tell, you know, uh, the, the the nonsense from, from the real news. Um, and you also, though, but on the other side of the ledger, is these are also people who are more receptive to kind of to nationalism to to civilizational vindictiveness to use this lovely phrase of yours i, I love did you coin that phrase civilizational vindictiveness yes <laughs> i did oh that's 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 brilliant i i'm going to be using that from now on <laughs> anyway uh what, what do you think i mean do you, where do you come down do you think that you know when you look at the balance on the one hand they're more tech savvy and further away from the cultural revolution on the other hand they're more stridently nationalistic uh, what what's their verdict going to be? So I, uh, I'll be cautiously cautiously pessimistic. I would say. Uh, I think my <laughs> my take is that uh within the liberal camp, younger liberals will be less pro Trump, uh, less receptive to pro Trump rhetorics, uh because they are tax savvy and and so on and so forth. But the liberal camp is shrinking. Right, so not only because of the disastrous uh, performance of the liberal camp this this time, but also because the larger environment, uh, indoctrination from early on uh, in in primary schools, uh, from uh, primary schools on, and censorship and so on and forth, and you can see the rise of this wolf warrior generation, and uh, I and they are also tech savvy. Right, so they yeah, yeah. they know how to uh, appropriate many of the liberal talk points and turn it into backing nationalist policies and nationalist ideologies. So I think in the future uh, we will see less um, <laughs> the curious performances uh, from from the liberal camp, but the, the the larger power balance between the liberal and non-liberal camps is firmly against liberalism in China. Uh, you're, you know, you're absolutely right about that jujitsu. They're able to take those Trumpist type of talking points and turn them. I mean, Cui Zhuyuan did, did that, as you you point out in, in uh, I can't remember which of the papers about how, you know, the, he took these Bannonite ideas about ethno nationalism and sort of, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, right? yeah, exactly, yes. exactly. And um, let's. Uh, I think we're 
kind of running out of time, but a big question for the future, what will the dissident intellectuals do now, given that their espousal of some of that Trumpian nonsense is not likely to endure them to Biden's team? Assuming, of course, Biden actually gets to uh, be president, <laughs> which my American friends still seem quite confident about. Uh, so do you, do you think these intellectuals will change their tune with the, the change of the political environment in the United States? I don't think they'll change their tune too much. Um, of course, Trump will probably fade away or at least won't be a force in politics and it won't be, become quite such an issue in a, a year from now. I'm sure he'll still be around. But, um, you know, I think it, it raises questions for the new administration about who their interlocutors are, who they're going to go out to save um, when they go to try to save China or whatever. I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of people who are victims of human rights violations in China who need, uh, you know, U.S. help or whatever, uh, the Uyghurs and, and, and so on. Um, but I, I think that it's, it's, it's hard because these were sort of the people who would get invited, let's say, to the Yale Law Center and that, uh, you know, Jeff Prescott used to, to head and, and, and who will now be on the NSC. And, and these, these are sort of the, the logical people who you would always invite and have to your talks. And, uh, I don't know who they will go to now. I mean, it's not that they'll cut these people out, but I just think that natural affinity isn't going to be there anymore. It's going to be Tong Biao, Tong Biao, and, and Tong Biao. He's like the only one left. He's a true believer. The only sane, normal. Sort of, yeah, yeah. No, that's Classic. not true. There, there's still others. There's still others. I mean, like, like, like Lin Yao, for example. <laughs> <laughs> so th- thank you both so much for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, we look forward to having you both back on the show. Uh, what, a, what a fun conversation that's been. Uh, let's move on now to recommendations. But first, really quickly, I want to remind everyone – that if you like the work we're doing with Seneca and with the other podcasts in the Seneca Network, like the China and Africa podcast, the best thing you can do to help us out is to subscribe to Sup China Access. For just 88 bucks a year, you get a wealth of news on China delivered to your inbox every day. Jeremy and his team do a fantastic job on this newsletter, so please check it out. Uh, recommendations. Jeremy, you start us off as, as usual. Okay, I've got three quick ones. Firstly, the Google app on your mobile phone is now really good at identifying plants and even birds really? and all kinds of things. And it's it's just introduced a kind of Shazam-like feature where you can hum a tune and it will uh, identify the tune for you. But the plant identification function is really, really good. Wow. Uh, so, sorry, I, I'd hate, I hate promoting, like, uh, you know, the company that's taking over our brains, but... Google app is a pretty good app if you like nature and want to identify things. Second thing I want to recommend is the BBC World. I've kind of had it with NPR. I've realized that American mainstream media is slowly rotting my brain because it makes you so sort of obsessed with what's going on in this country, which is kind of a topic we mentioned at the top of the show. And the BBC World remains a great antidote. And, you know, if there's one thing going for Britain after Brexit, I'd say it's the BBC World. Uh, Maybe, uh, I don't know, there are a few other things. They have some nice stuff they stole in the British Museum, I guess. Um, And finally, on the topic of today's show, but, you know, looking at similar questions from a different era, the book In the Red by uh, my friend Jeremy Barmey. All right. Okay. Uh, Leo, what do you have for us? 
Uh, I would like to recommend two books, one on China and the other on the U.S. Uh, the, the first book, Discourses of Race and Rise in China by Chen Yinghong, or Yinghong Chen, a historian at Delaware University, which mm-hmm. traces contemporary racism and all the racist discourses in China, which correspond to perfectly to the, my, my idea of uh, civilizational bacanism. So if you want to know more about this, uh, check this book out, which came out uh, late last year. And the other book is um, Anthony Scalia and uh, American Constitutionalism by Ed Purcell, uh, which came out this year. Uh, so if you're wondering, like, uh, how come the U.S. conservatism has come to this? How come the U.S. legal judicial system have come to this? Check this book out and see how uh, Anthony Scalia, uh, Scalia and other so-called originalists have used uh, legal, legal rhetorics to advance the kind, their partisan uh, ob- uh, goals, partisan objects with, with all these legal dragons. And the book breaks down quite well with all, all those cases and relevant discussions for you. Excellent. That's exactly a question I've been asking myself. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, That's great. So Antonin Scalia and... American Constitutionalism. Okay, and American Constitutionalism. Great. I will make a note of that one. Uh, Ian, what do you have for us? Um, well, there's a magazine article that I was just reading that I really liked, I thought might be worth uh, looking at, called Confessions of a Clinton World Exile in the current <laughs> issue of Vanity Fair. It's about this guy, Doug Band, who was... Uh, worked as one of Clinton's right-hand men during the administration and then set up the whole Clinton Foundation. Foundation. And it just lays out the whole corruption in that uh, world and I think sort of points or helps explain the rise of of Trump um, as a reaction to that. The whole cronyism with Chelsea in the foundation and, and so on and so forth. Um, it's it's a pretty interesting insight into the workings of of, of American political elite. Um, another a book that I I really can strongly recommend, um, and I be doing a review of it that will appear months from now, I'm sure, in the New York Review of Books because I have such a long queue. But um, it's called Forbidden Memory: uh, Tibet During the Cultural Revolution, and it's by Tsering Wozer. Um, yeah. And I guess. Many listeners may know Wozer is a, a Tibetan writer who lives in Beijing, and she um, found these photos that her father had taken during the Cultural Revolution, and they were published in 2007 in Taiwan, but they've been published uh, now in English translation and strongly reworked and expanded. She went back to parts of Tibet again, with really long cut lines that are like essays on the Cultural Revolution. Um, and it's a really rare, rare photos because there just were not a lot of photos taken, period, in Tibet um, up until, you know, say the 1980s or something. So these photos are just stunning. Her father had been an army officer, so uh, they were really quite unusual things. Um, and then finally, just to... Uh, to reiterate what, what Jeremy said, but a little more f- even focused, would be... I listen to the BBC a lot also, and I would strongly recommend the BBC Global News Podcast, which is a 25-minute podcast twice a day. And the great thing is, of course, it'll have U.S. news, but it only has at most, say, five minutes of U.S. news, and the other 20 minutes are from parts of the world you just don't hear about on NPR. And there's just a different level of professionalism. You don't have this kind of whiny, sing-songy, American 
reporters that you get on NPR. Oh, hi, it's Betsy here. Oh, friend. Oh, oh yeah. And, oh, oh stop, you, stop. we're talking the same thing. That's the wall. I just can't stand it anymore. Oh, God, it's so horrible. It's like, shut the f*** up and tell us what's going on in the Gambia. <laughs> you know, we've had enough. Yeah. Anyway, and so sorry. The, the Global News Podcast, I mean, I know the BBC is probably under a lot of pressure, but they're, they're just great. Um, and, and it's a good way to get a news digest, I think. So those are my three things. Just, just to fuck with you guys, I'm going to do my recommendation in my best NPR, <laughs> uh, in, my, in my best NPR announcer voice. I want to recommend following Chen Chen Zhang on Twitter because she's someone who writes about these same topics and is super smart. She teaches now at Queen's University, Belfast, and I first encountered her work after she wrote about the idea of Baidzuad really helped shape my own thinking on how so many Chinese people seem to have embraced Trump and what he stands for. I actually asked her to join us in this conversation because as an NPR announcer, I believe in diversity and gender balance. I actually did ask her to join us, but she was too busy. Uh, But we will have her on one of these days. I think she's just brilliant. Um, I, I know that she uh, probably read your paper pretty early on, right? right? Y- yes, y'all? yes. I sent her the draft and I would like to second your recommendation. She's brilliant, yeah. And also, just to add on that, a little bit of self-promotion, but also promoting Chen Chen, she and I and two other friends, Guo Ting and Li Hanlun, we are co-hosting a podcast in Mandarin. It's great. I've been listening. Yeah, in between this, yeah, check it out. <laughs> it's really great. I was going to say that that, that's a, a good, good podcast. I, I, I love it. You guys are, are are fantastic. I mean, I I don't. There's not a lot of Chinese language podcasts that I listen to, but that's one of them. So I really, I really love it. Thank you. All right, uh, Ian. What a pleasure as always. I uh, can't can't wait to to hang out again. And congrats on your uh, your recent fatherhood. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah, congrats. About yeah. an eight month yeah. old. Baby who has been quiet for the past hour, so I've loved Unbelievable. Out. Wow. Uh, yeah, Very Liao, <laughs> what, a, what a delight. I'm really glad that we finally got a chance to, to talk in, in person. I, <laughs> I uh, admire your work tremendously, and I can't wait to see what's next from you. Jeremy, as always. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care. Hey.